1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 to 5a. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, for the next four weeks, and then after a short break on into March and early April, we're going to be considering what I'd like us to see as a model startup. Now, I guess we're all used to the concept of studying good practice. The parent does it. Look at Jimmy. The teacher, likewise, you see it in sport and in business. But over the next weeks, we're taking a trip to the ancient city of Thessalonica. Those of you who follow the Greek domestic league will be familiar with the modern Park Thessaloniki, the third largest fan base in the country, now running third in the league. But the ancient city was on the great Via Ignatia, a vital transport route in the Roman Empire, running through Macedonia, today's northern Greece, linking Rome to the eastern regions of the realm. The city had a key trading port. It was a free city, the leading city of Macedonia, was described as a second Rome, and Cicero, who had, Cicero, who had lived in Thessalonica, described those as living there as living in the lap of the empire. So this, I think, is a fine case study for us. In many ways, we might say London mirrors Thessalonica, a key city on the global stage. But the lessons we're going to be learning are not obviously lessons of business, school, or management classes, sports, or child development. You can see from the first sentence, Paul, Savanus, and Timothy, who were involved in starting the church in Thessalonica, write to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So this is a letter to the church, and immediately clarification is required. When we mention church, preconditioning tends to have us think of great buildings like this one, even large congregations like the 150, 200 or so, whatever we are here today. Significant established groupings of churches, even denominations and affiliations. One of my favorite walks is in the outskirts of London. We'll often find us there on a Saturday morning. We always pop into the pub at Ainsford, the malt shovel, where a rack of ribs will take at least five years off your life expectancy, as my doctor has informed me in a New Year's medical. But on, on the way, if we have overseas visitors, we pop into Lullingston Manor, and here we see the ancient Roman manor house. And, and at some point in the fourth century, around about the fourth century, uh, the ancient pagan idol temple was turned into a church. And what is so striking is that the, the church is no bigger than one of our little ministry rooms upstairs, holding a maximum of 15 or 20 people. And so when Paul writes to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, you know, we're not, I think, to think of, of a gathering of this sort. 
but potentially of multiple small groups, multiple little groups of believers there in Thessalonica. And the Apostle Paul had been in Thessalonica very early in his second missionary journey, about 49 AD, the second city of mainland Europe to receive the Christian gospel. And here we are, just a matter of months, possibly only 12 to 18 months later, as he writes his letter. Now, it is worth putting a finger in Acts chapter 17. So just turn back there, hold on to 1 Thessalonians, and turn back to page 1116. And we'll pop back there a little later in this session. But had we time to read chapter 17, verses 1 through 10 of Acts, we'd notice that Paul spent three Sabbath days in the synagogue at Thessalonica, that he was then kicked out, but that he then almost certainly went to conduct a significant ministry in the region, and churches got started. And this letter, written 12 to 18 months later, when Paul is in Corinth, then both reflects on the startup of the church and next steps. So though I've couched this in terms of a startup, what we have here is not simply a model startup. So back in 1 Thessalonians, keep a finger in Acts chapter uh, uh, 17. Back in 1 Thessalonians and over a page in chapter 2, verse 17, as we get our bearings, that's page 1188. Paul writes, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Chapter 3, verse 1, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by those afflictions. So you see, the, the apostle has been driven out of Thessalonica. He's gone down into Athens and is now probably in Corinth, unable to see how they were getting on because he's been driven out. He sent Timothy to find out how things were growing. And his great passion, his great desire is that these young Christians be rooted and established and encouraged. I love the language of Paul. It shows such a commitment to those who he's worked amongst. Just look at, amongst, just look at chapter 3, verse 8. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It's as if his whole life is bound up with this small group of young believers. And then he prays, verses 11 through 13 of chapter 3, Look at verse 13, that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. So not only a startup, how the church got started, but also what is needed next. And it was Paul's normal practice after a church had got started, then to revisit that same group of believers just a year or so later to encourage them and to establish them in the faith, particularly because of the suffering and persecution that Christians so often faced as they had turned to a completely new way of living and, and those uh, from their family and friends often then reviled them. 
Uh, and the language of established is the language of rooted. It's the language taken from you know, a tree putting down deep roots. This morning, Wes was talking to us about this. I don't know if you knew, but his father was a lumberjack. And uh, lumberjacks aren't usually terribly concerned with the roots. But uh, Wes gave us a little talk about the, the importance of roots for a tree. Think of the gherkin and those great pillars of concrete driven down into London clay. And here is Paul's concern for these young churches that they be rooted, established, firmly fixed, standing fast in the Christian faith. And I'd like to suggest what we have here is not simply a description of how they got started, but also a description of the next steps for them. I think this is of extraordinary importance for us here as a group of Christians in the city. You know, what we find here in the city post-lockdown, multiple companies, businesses, with small groups of Christians often in each one of those companies, what will it look like for that group of Christians to be living in an appropriate way as a group of Christians in whatever company it happens to be, or a bank or an insurance firm or whatever it happens to be? At the same time, what we find in a gathering like this is quite a number of young Christians. What does it actually look like? What does it look like to get started properly? And then what does it look like for us to be firmly rooted and established in the face and standing fast? And then some of us old sweats, well, it won't be very bad for us to have a look at this early letter, probably among the first two of the earliest letters in the New Testament, to look at it. What does it look like for us to be properly established in the Christian gospel? Well, in chapter one, with that introduction, Uh, Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we see first the three hallmarks of the healthy model baby church. Faith, love, and hope. Classic realities of the Christian faith. So, first, faith and the work of faith. Verses 2 and 3, find Paul introducing the cause of his praise and thanksgiving for God's work in Thessalonica. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. So here Paul wants to assure the Thessalonians of his own confidence in their authentic baby first steps. And you might say they're on the 99th percentile. They're doing really well. He gives thanks for their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. So the facts of the Christian good news concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ have produced in the Thessalonians an active faith turning to the Lord Jesus with deliberate steps of obedience. Elsewhere, Paul talks about the obedience of faith. That is the obedience of responding to Jesus' command to turn and trust him, followed by the ongoing obedience of a life lived out under his rule. 
It's not that the faith itself is a good work, earning salvation. It's a gift from God. Nor is it that the works done as a result of faith gain merit with God to win salvation. That will be to put the cart before the horse. Rather, the facts of the Christian good news about Jesus Christ spoken to the Thessalonians have caused them to see Jesus, put their trust in him, and order their lives accordingly. So says Paul, we give thanks to God always for all of you, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, the birth, life, death, resurrection, enthronement, and coming return of Jesus Christ as he is proclaimed in Thessalonica produces a work of faith as they surrender to Jesus and order their lives accordingly. Now, this faith produces a wholesale change of direction in their lives and has resulted in works that stem from faith. We're looking at this passage yesterday with a group of believers in one of the companies around here, and somebody said, perhaps you might put it like this, the work that stems from faith as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. One of the benefits to me of serving the Lord Jesus in the same place for quite a number of years now is you can actually see people who put their faith in Jesus and their faith in Christ then redirects the whole of their life. And if you are a genuine Christian today, you would be able to say that is exactly your testimony. Certainly my testimony. I remember when I turned, recognized the kingship of Jesus surrendered to his rule, it produced a work of faith in my life, bit by bit by bit. My language changed, the way I used my time changed, my sense of humor changed, the treatment of others' property changed, the way I related to my parents changed, the way I used my money changed, the way I treated people of the opposite sex changed. A work of faith But the faith that has produced a changed life is matched by a love that produces a changed labor. And again, that should not surprise us. So have a look at verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you look at any organization... Always, they eventually come to reflect the character of the person who leads it. Have you ever spotted that? That that a battalion receives a new commanding officer, and almost overnight, the ethos changes. A school receives a new head teacher, and so quickly, the whole shape of the school begins to alter. A business receives a new CEO, and immediately, everything is different, and over time, it begins to work its way out. Well, what is the characteristic that marks out the Lord Jesus above all else? Love. And love produces labor on others' behalf. And so there is a a work of faith and there is a labor of love from the person who turns to follow Jesus. God is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sin sacrifice for us. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And God's love is a love for the whole world. Every person, every ever born into this creation, God even loves his enemies. And so the first thing you begin to see in a person's life as they turn to Jesus in faith is that that character begins to be reflected in the person's life. I actually think one of the earliest things you see in a person as they turn to Jesus is a softening of the person. Not that the person becomes soft, but they're just kinder, more loving. A softening is the character because we've come to deal with the one whose very name is love. Very early in my time here, a dear friend felt seriously ill in the congregation, unknown to me. Over the period of their illness, friends were visiting this person in hospital over and over again for many, many months. And the individual concerned at that stage happened to be working on the team here. And at some point, three or four months in, members of their family made an appointment to see me. And they came to see me to say thank you for these Christian brothers and sisters of this individual who out of love had given up a whole afternoon to head off to a city down on the coast to visit this person, a labor of love. And here in the city, we should expect to find exactly the same thing. As a small gathering church, you might like to call it, establishes itself in a company, we'll find works of faith, the work of faith, and we'll find the labor of love. Uh, in Paul, you see it very powerfully in the way he relates to these Thessalonians. Just turn over again to chapter 2 and verse 19. Well, verse 17. We were torn away from you, brothers. Verse 19. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. And so we witness it with Paul, this intense concern for the well-being of his Christian brothers and sisters. What a glorious thing as we begin to see it reflected in a group of Christians. What a wonderful thing for us here on a Tuesday or a Thursday. See how they love one another. The word labor there is the word for toil, exertion, and hard work producing fatigue. And they had clearly given themselves out of love that stemmed from the love of Jesus Christ. And it spread far and wide. And if you look down the page of chapter 1, you can see in verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, and your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So their labor of love, their exertion of love for one another has extended far and wide. Now, the third mark is there also in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Of course, one of the foundational marks of the God of the Bible is that he gives us hope. And this is most evident in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Out of the decay of this broken world, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
every Christian man, woman, and child has certainty and confidence concerning the future that lies ahead. I don't know if you know the Lamentation of Jeremiah. It's a little book, five chapters long, there in the Old Testament, and it's Jeremiah the prophet sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been completely overrun and is ruined. And the people have been deported, and and many of them have been put to death. And there is Jeremiah. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I don't know where you stand at the start of 2024. It may well be that you are in a position of ruin. Even in such a position, the Christian finds through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is always, always, even at the graveside, the Christian person has real hope. Well, we've run out of time. I was going to spend more time in verses 6 and, uh, sorry, in, in verse 4 and 5. We'll have to come back to that this week. But do you see what we have here? The blueprint, if you like, the benchmark, the plumb line of an authentic Christian beginning. Faith, hope, and love. All of them coming from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you think Paul is writing this just 18 months after, you might call it their, their, their annual review. Look how they've done. Just 12 months, 18 months later. He is full of thanks for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. And as we think around the other Christians in our company, uh, back home in the churches we come from, uh, here on a Tuesday and a Thursday, what, what a glorious goal for us to be aiming towards, all produced by the proclamation of the gospel as we see in verses 4 and 5, and we'll come back to next week. Let me lead us in prayer. We do pray, our Father in heaven, that you would establish such a work in our midst. What an impact such a thing would have here in the city of London in the 21st century. We thank you, our Father, for every work of faith that you have established all the labor of love that you have energized and the steadfastness of confidence and certainty in the risen Lord Jesus Christ and all that lies beyond. We pray that you would establish each and every one of us in this for the glory of your name. Amen.